Dreams for Ex Libris on air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is It's All About Something. And joining me from California is author Alexander Villarasa. Thank you, sir, for joining me, sir. Thank you very much, Jay, for uh, asking me to uh, to be interviewed by you and be involved in the in, in in being interviewed by your radio and being listened to by your listeners as well. Excellent. Well, it's and it's Doctor Doctor Villarasa. Uh, you uh, have yes. had a, a a successful practice in California and have decided all of a sudden you wanted to share some of your personal insight and and opinions. I will say, because your book, uh, you know. And attaches itself to some rather controversial subjects in some ways. I don't think that there's anything that's controversial about it, but there may be some of my listeners that do. What was the um, motivation to share your ideas? Well, I, I actually wrote a book of essays that deals with family, friendships, career, and uh, almost anything else in between that I thought would make the readers think of their own life experiences. And I emphasize the fact that existence is both physical and spiritual. And that's the most important thing that I've been emphasizing in the essay. Now, the other essay is about me or myself. is almost like a semi-autobiography of my journey from childhood to where I am right now here in Palm Springs. And one thing that I found fascinating by it, and again, it's just uh, maybe opinion about folks in California and maybe even Palm Springs, they don't appear to be, at least on the surface, very conservative. And yet your viewpoint uh, would be probably put in the conservative uh, viewpoint. Uh, you you have some very traditional views about family and life. Well, that's that's how I've been raised by my family, and, I've, and that's the way I raised my own family throughout the years. So I basically... Uh, 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 agree with your uh, with your uh, idea that in fact I have some 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 uh, very traditional views of how life should be lived and all that. I personally like the book and and love the chapter titles. You have uh, chapter titles chapter titles like Angels and Other yep. Strangers, Shepherds of the Wind. Uh, just personal observations in sunrise, sunset. Which of the chapters do you think, maybe uh, from a general general reader's standpoint, would uh, would capture the listener and uh, maybe motivate them to go and get a copy of your book? Well, basically, the first chapter, the first essay is uh, sunrise, sunset. So it basically uh, describes my my childhood, my birth, my childhood and my high school years, my teen years, and my college years, and now my professional years. Uh, so that basically is what I had in mind when I wrote that essay. I want to introduce myself to the uh, readers first, because they will need to know where I'm coming from and all of that. Now, the other essays that I discussed in the, in the book is, are, are the, are the uh, thoughts that I have about, about things that are important in my life and that would be uh, my spiritualist, uh, uh, how do you say it, my leaning. And I would say that, in fact, my life has been quoted by the fact that I look at it not only in the physical aspect of it, but also in the spiritual aspect of it. Uh, would you would you feel that your audience is a pretty broad audience, or is it one uh, maybe that is faith based, or is it one that just has a general overview of there's something bigger than me out there? Yeah, well, you know what, I, I'm I'm I, I'm not uh, I didn't write the book to to uh, sway people's ideas of how they should live their own lives. I'm basically suggesting that I'm living my own life the way I see it fit, and if they find it a little a little different from what they have in mind for their own, then that's okay with me. Uh, but uh, I'm just sharing with them why I, I choose to, uh, to, uh, to, to think about things the way I think about things, because that, that's how I was raised by my family. Your family, and you mentioned that you, uh, you were influenced a great deal, and in your first chapter have talked about your birth and your growing up. Uh, you didn't mention the country that you were from originally. Yes, from the Philippines. Welcome to Ex Libris on Air, How and long the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Well, uh, I came to the United States in 1975 as an immigrant. 
and I applied for an internship uh, in Los Angeles. I was accepted at the Martin Luther King Jr. County General Hospital, where I did my pediatric internship and residency program that took me about three years. After that, I had to pass the California board examination for me to be able to uh, practice in California, and that's what where I've been practicing basically all, all these years, uh, from Los Angeles, uh, Orange County, to Riverside, and now here in Palm Springs. And your book, although you have a medical background uh, in, in that profession, most of your commentary is uh, on personal things. It's uh, Although you said it's somewhat bio, uh, semi-biographical in, in nature, yes. you, you talk about the audacity of faith, you talk about Destiny's Child, Dr. Ben Carson, mm-hmm. uh, Doctor as mm-hmm. Patient. There's one chapter, I guess, that does deal with, with the medical profession or two. Uh, the Doctor as Patient, uh, what does that cover? Well, it basically uh, relates to the fact that I could be a patient, too. And I just want the readers to, to, to think that doctors could be patients too and how they perceive themselves as patients is also very important. So it's not only the fact that we are on the other side of the healing process, but we're also on the other side of that healing process. Being a patient and being a doctor uh, in, some, uh, in, different, in different ways. Are there some what I would refer to as amusing stories in your book? Uh, I, when I was a patient? Well, just uh, in general, you have one titled uh, T-Rex and the Dodo Bird. I, uh, by, by title, it sounds uh, like it might be a fun read. Well, it is a fun read, but it's actually a political uh, poem about how the liberalist uh, predisposition of some people, especially the previous president, have actually devalued the liberalist, uh, how do you say it, uh, predisposition. I always thought that liberal liberalism uh, became very popular because of its humanistic predisposition or tendencies. But now, because of political correctness and the fact that a lot of these liberals are now trying to skew people from expressing their own views that are totally different from them, they have now gone to the path of anarchism. See what's happening in the University of Berkeley where uh, some folks on the, on the other side is trying to talk about their ideas and then they are not uh, being allowed by, by these uh, anarchist students to, to present their ideas to them. Right. So liberalism has, has started to degrade itself and I would think it's probably self-inflicted more than anything. I would agree. Well, I'm, I'm supposed to be kind of neutral, but I do agree with you. Uh, your chapter headings certainly uh, give a, a wonderful insight into your perspective on uh, not only life, but also on your philosophy of life. The book mm-hmm. itself, when you finished it, uh, have you had an opportunity to share it with anyone and received any commentaries or feedback from uh, maybe uh, former colleagues or, or others? Yeah, surprising they should ask me that question because I had a very liberal friend of mine who, wrote, who, who, who read the book in its entirety. He told me, Alex, I like your book, but you should remove the, the, the essay on Obama's abomination. <laughs> Other than that, it was okay? Other than that, it was okay for him, but since he's a liberal, <laughs> and I was not a big fan of Obama during his presidency and after his presidency, I was detailing in that essay the fact that Obama had four different uh, uh, areas that he did not quite do very well because of his ideology. Well, again, I, I commend you for your courage. I will say this to any of my listeners. If you happen to be someone who is not conservative in your viewpoint, you should still buy the book because it's got some great some great chapters in it. And if you want to skip over the one just mentioned, that probably would be okay by the author. Uh, where? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just I was curious uh, whether there is any uh, particular goal in mind other than sharing your personal thoughts. What do you hope to, to achieve by sharing this book? It's all about something. Yeah, well, as I said before, I want to uh, introduce myself to the readers and tell them exactly who I am and what I am and what 
roads I took during my journey from sunrise to sunset, and what other things that I thought of about during that journey. I'm not particularly a uh, political person. Uh, in fact, I vote either uh, Democrat or Republican, depending upon uh, whether that particular uh, candidate is, is, uh, is, is I think, uh, sufficient to be my, my, my candidate I would vote for. Excellent. So, so I, I, I sway both ways, politically speaking, but the fact that Obama was not too particularly uh, good at being president because he, he, he approached his presidency purely on ideological terms, his leftist, almost socialistic, ideological um, uh, introspection, I suppose, and I wasn't too keen about that one. Again, the the title of your book is is interesting as well. It's all about something. Is that uh, a, a title that has any particular significance other than the fact that you talk about and share your ideas on many subjects? Yeah, well, that, that's the main point. But uh, if you read the preface, uh, when I was writing the essay, I was asking myself, what should I title this 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 book? And I said, I might title it. It's all about God, the universe man and me. And then my wife said, oh, that's a little bit over the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave it to a spouse. <laughs> so, yeah, so I remembered, you know, he has, a, he has a TV show, and his mantra for that show was, it's all about nothing. Seinfeld, uh, the Seinfeld show. Oh, Seinfeld, yeah. Jerry I'm Seinfeld. Sorry. I'm sorry, Jerry Seinfeld, or <laughs> if I mispronounce your word, but in any case, so I was thinking, I, I, I saw that, uh, that TV show every so often, and I said, look, they were talking about relationships, interacting relationships, friendships, and otherwise. And I said, it's not all about nothing. It's all about something. Mm. So interacting relationships like friendship, like family, kinship, it's all, all about something. Well, you may have to send Jerry a, a commendation for uh, giving you the title idea. I don't know. Uh, oh, maybe. <laughs> was, were there any complications or any challenges uh, that, that you hadn't anticipated in sharing or putting this into print? I'm sorry, again, can you repeat that question, Sure. Uh, were there any uh, complicated issues or challenges that you had to overcome in order to get this into print? No, nothing, actually. When I submitted this to and they, they read the book, uh, and uh, I mean the manuscript, and I suppose they have the um, editorial board there that also read the uh, manuscript. They said, yeah, we could definitely publish this book. Uh, it sounds like uh, something that would be read by a lot of uh, readers. It would pique the uh, interest of a lot of readers. So I said, okay. But, you know, the self-publishing, this is my first attempt at publishing a book, so I decided to self-publish instead of going to... Uh, through the process of going to a, what you call this now traditional publishers. Right. Uh, so it's a different process, I suppose. Is this the only book that you intend to write, or is there a big can of creativity that has hit you? Well, I'm already in the process of writing my second book. It's also a book of essays, and again, about my musings, about religion, about philosophy, about science and their interactive relationship. I would think, and I, I was proposing in some of the essays in my book, that religion and science are not exclusive. They're, they don't, are not mutually exclusive, that's what I meant. Yes. In fact, science and religion should be connected tangentially in terms of finding the truth about our existence, about the universe, and about whoever created us. Exceptional. This is, uh, again, a, a wonderful read. It's called It's All About Something, and my guest has been Dr. Alexander Villarasa. Uh, Dr. Villarasa, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Uh, well, it's now available online uh, on Amazon, uh, Barnes & Noble, and Ex Libris. Very good. And do you have a website yet? Yes, it's uh, alexvillarasa.com. Uh, Very good. And let me spell Villarasa for everyone. It's V-I-L-L-A-R. 
A-S-A. So they can do a search online in the future and also find uh, any other book that uh, will be published under your name. Thank you for joining me today and sharing your story. This is, again, a fascinating book of essays, about 150 pages, a little less than that. Uh, again, if, uh, if, a, if a title of a, a chapter might make you nervous, you can always skip it and go to the next one. But I think you'll enjoy reading everything there. Oh, Jay, have you read the last essay, by the way? I haven't gotten that far. Two cuts and two jokes, that one? Yes. Have you read the first joke? <laughs> I haven't read it yet. Do you want Do you want to share it, or, or do oh. you want to hold it for the uh, the folks well, that to read? I can share it. Okay. Uh, do you have time? Absolutely. For do you, I, have time I do. limit for this interview? No, not for you. Go ahead. Okay. Well, uh, as you know, I am a pediatrician, so I do circumcision. So the referral, the reference to the... Uh, uh, two cuts is about circumcision. So the first part of the essay is discussing circumcision, how it came about, and all of that. But the second part is basically uh, uh, when I'm doing a circumcision, several dads get very nervous about watching the circumcision process. I don't know why. So one dad was, yeah, and one dad was telling me, Doc, I'm, I'm so nervous about it, and I think I'm going to feel a little bit less nervous if I tell you a, a really good joke. So I said, okay, while I was doing the circumcision, she was telling me this joke about a guy who went to the tattoo parlor, and I have to uh, to tell you, readers, if they're not into green, dirty jokes, they should stop uh, listening to this interview. Uh-oh. Go ahead. Oh, <laughs> um, because this joke is really funny, but it's a little on the, on the dirty side of things. Mm. Okay? Can I tell the joke? Go ahead, and if it's bad, we'll, uh, we'll edit. Go ahead. Okay. All right. So this guy went to the tattoo parlor, and he told the tattoo would you please tattoo $100 on my penis? So the tattooist said, really? Why would you want to do that? You know, that area is very sensitive, so I tattoo it there. It's going to be very, very painful. Number two, $100 is very detailed. So if you expect me to tattoo a very detailed $100, I can't do it in one day. That means you have to be going back and forth, back and forth to my shop. And thirdly, it's going to cost you a lot of money. Said, ah, you didn't know I'm rich. I'm rich. I can pay for it. About the pain, I've had a lot of pain in my lifetime. About the going back and forth to your shop, you know, I'm not doing anything right now. So I have all the time in the world. So the tattoo said, okay, okay. I think you really want this done, but before I do it, you have to tell me why you want me to tattoo hundred dollars. Listeners, this is not a bad joke necessarily, but in order to hear it in its entirety or see it in its entirety, you need to buy the book. Oh boy, we may have to oh censor. Boy. We may have oh to censor that one. I don't know. Well, Are you going to edit? I might have that, to. Jay? I, I might have to. I might have to send you oh. that part by itself, and you can listen to it. <laughs> we'll have we'll have to we'll have to consider that one. But again, thank you for joining me All today. Right, again, Jay. the title. I, I thank you very much for for giving me giving me this opportunity to be interviewed on radio All right. and giving the opportunity for my book to be uh, exposed to the potential readers out there. Well, I'm sure they'll enjoy the read. Absolutely. It's all about something. Guest Alexander right. Villarasa. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Jay. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard... The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors, all quilters just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything.
Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Hell, Heaven, or Hoboken by Christmas, an American soldier in the 1st Gas Regiment. And joining me from Illinois in the United States of America is author Robert Lambert. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Hi, Jay. This is a fascinating book because of not only the content, but also the way it was put together. Uh, the the story or the contents inside the covers are really about someone that uh, was close to you or someone you knew well, uh, George Maurice Thompson. Who was George Maurice Thompson, and what is the content of this book? Okay, uh, and he used the American pronunciation, George Morris. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's that's something I kind of expected. People nowadays would look at that and say Maurice. But uh, George Morris Thompson was my grandfather. Mm. He asked me to uh, look through his memoirs. He, he had stories and um, things written down in several different places. and He asked me to edit them and put them all together into a logical order. And that's how the thing got started. Uh, he was a farm boy, and your story, or his story, uh, begins, or really is, is focused on, in this book at least, on what was called the Great War. What is the Great War, and uh, have American students and the populace generally forgotten the details of what happened in the Great War? Yeah, the Great War was is now known as World War One. At the time, it was called the Great War because it was uh, a scope that was unprecedented in history. Nothing even comparing to that in size had ever happened before. You have uh, delved into the history, and for those who are history buffs or those who want to learn more about the Great War, they can get a full education by, by just sharing the contents of your pages. How long did it take to get those details in place and, and organized? I've been working on the book since 1975. Wow. Uh, that's when I started doing the memoirs. After my grandfather died, I ended up with his war diary, which I didn't even know existed when I first started. And so I thought I would fit that in with what uh, he had in the memoirs. And as I was reading history, um, I thought, well, you know, I ought to, put in a little commentary on what's going on in the big picture in the war because most people really aren't all that familiar with World War One. And I did that and produced a little thing, oh, maybe 80 pages just for the family uh, back about 18 or 19 years ago. When I got close to uh, the anniversary of the war, you know, it's been 100 years now, I thought, you know, maybe other people would be interested, too. Uh, so I did some more work, and actually, just a little over a year ago, I found another part of his memoirs that I didn't even know existed. Mm. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, a little over a year ago, I actually put everything back together again. And the reason I put everything back together and um, was because I had it all on a floppy disk, which was corrupted. <laughs> I had a typed copy that I had to go back and retype everything. Yeah, you may you may have to describe for my listeners what a floppy disk is. Uh, they 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 may think that's uh, something with a back injury. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, the, the floppy disk is something that uh, you used to keep your uh, materials on from a computer. Yes, it, it has evolved a great deal since uh, since when I was using floppy disks back, and I guess it was not that long ago in my world, uh, 1980, 1990s, uh, those, those floppy disks were, were a go-to, uh, go-to item. Yeah. When you when you were when you were researching the story of World War One and especially looking at the memoirs of your grandfather, uh, two questions come to mind: Did you discover anything that was maybe surprising about your grandfather that uh, you didn't know before delving into his personal uh, personal writings? And secondly, most returning veterans don't want to share or remember what they did during their time in the service. 
your father or your grandfather seemed to have a, a desire to share that, though. Was that a little unusual for you to discover that? No, it wasn't unusual. Um, actually, when I was a little kid, my cousin and I would um, get together and spend the night at his house. And uh, when he told us bedtime stories when we were little kids, you know, sometimes we'd say, tell us about the war. Hmm. So, you know, he told us about those things from very, uh, when I was very young. The, as I, I was reading through the diary and the memoirs, um, I, I was surprised at how much time he spent in the hospital and how short a time he had to train. He was only in his unit for 19 days before they went to uh, France. Incredible. And uh, out of that 19 days, he didn't even have a company for the first week. Did he He obviously survived the, the uh, times in hospital. How often did he uh, become injured, and why do you think they they put him back into the line of fire again. Oh, well, his first injury was... Welcome back, Dax Liebers. It was a... started off with a blister on his instep. They had a long march from the boat up to their barracks, and it was uphill all the way, apparently. He had a sock that slipped down while he was marching, and he didn't feel like he could drop out of line to fix it. And by the time he got to the barracks, he had that blister. Um, they didn't take good care of it. Mm. And a couple of days at the barracks, and then he was on the train. And, of course, um, traveling on the train, he didn't even get a chance to get his boots off. And by the time that he arrived at um, Langris, which is where they got off the train to go to their training area, he had developed blood poisoning, which is, is basically an infection where the infection gets into the bloodstream. Yes. And he was, his uh, first six weeks there was in the hospital. Incredible. Uh, while, yeah, the rest of the unit was training, but then, you know, he got back with the unit in time to do some training before they went up to the line. Is the term trench foot something that was uh, unique or uh, developed in the Great War, World War One, or is that something else? Well, the trench foot is uh, something from World War One. The Allies' trenches were wet and muddy all the time. They didn't. <laughs> they, they didn't make the trenches comfortable like the Germans did. The Germans built the trenches to be there a long time. Uh, the Allies made the trenches somewhat uncomfortable to encourage your soldiers to go forward. Mm. And uh, with muddy, wet trenches all the time, feet get wet, and that's where trench foot comes from, having wet feet in the trenches all the time. Yes, and can be very dangerous too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what 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 uh, bit of information or discovery did you make in the um, in the memoir, other than the hospital stays, that may have surprised you? Did your grandfather deal with the uh, horrors of war in his comments, or was it just general day to day? sharing of information i wrote a letter today I, I you know i received something or was it how how broad a scope was it well he he did mention um some of the things about when he uh, first got into the front uh they were behind the infantry and um they were just north of bellow woods and they had to repair the roads and clear the roads so that uh, the ambulances could get through. And part of it was um, hauling dead bodies and dead horses off the road. Hmm. Uh, he spoke about that. And, um, oh, maybe two, three weeks later, he talked about where they were stationed. Uh, they were close to the cemetery and taps 
was being played 24 hours a day, nonstop, because they were constantly burying soldiers. And uh, when he went into the Muse Argonne, he talked about uh, soldiers with uh, really bad uh, wounds just laying at the side of the road. So, you know, he got into a lot of different details. Uh, And, of course, part of it is because I I had so many different stories and memoirs to work with. Mm. The the title of the book, Hell, Heaven, or Hoboken by Christmas, that's a a fascinating title. Is that something that he inspired, or is this just an idea that that you created? Uh, Actually... He had mentioned it in his memoirs, um, and I found out later that it came from something that uh, General Pershing said. He was promising his troops that the, when the Americans got there, they would put it early into the war, hmm. and everyone shipped out from Hoboken, New Jersey, and when they went back, they went through Hoboken. And he told his troops, there's going to be an early end of the war. You will either be in hell, heaven, or Hoboken by Christmas. Incredible. Incredible. Was it difficult researching and getting the historical content? Because your book is uh, unique. It's more than just a memoir of a family member. We do get authors that do that and share some interesting stories. But yours is, uh, I think, appealing to a, a broader audience, the way I looked at it. I didn't think of it as difficult because I enjoyed doing it so much, but I did spend a lot of time in the library, went through a lot of books, um, actually went through a lot of stuff that um, I didn't use at all. Um, Some of the historical records, like the military kept, um, were pretty mundane. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of of things that... um, I didn't find interesting at all, even though the whole story was interesting. What will the reader get from your book, uh, other than, you know, the the uh, look back from your grandfather's point of view? What will they actually get from reading your book? Is this something that will appeal to a broad audience? Well, um, one thing, they'll get an in-depth look at life on the battlefront through the eyes of um, someone who was actually there. Um, and it's, you know, it's in the context of the politics and military strategy. Um, so I guess, um, there, you know, there's that. And, um, also at the very beginning, there's a, a look at what life was like, um, for a farm boy, um, in an era when mechanization was way different than it is now. I mean, he took his first car ride when he was 10 years old. Wow. And he he viewed it sort of like a carnival ride. The local doctor was coming through. He was walking back from uh, helping his father do some replanting. doctor was going the wrong way. He rode with him anyway, just so he could get in the car. <laughs> that was 1910 then, what, or 19, uh, uh, 1908, I guess it would have been. 1908. Phenomenal. Well, the book is is uh, well done. It's it's a fascinating look at early history through the eyes of a soldier and his comments, and also the research you've done is spectacular. 172 pages, not a long read, but one I think that will be riveting to those who pick it up and uh, begin looking at its tale. The title again is Hell, Heaven, or Hoboken by Christmas, an American soldier in the 1st Gas Regiment. Uh, Thank you, sir, for joining me, Robert. Where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Um, Well, actually, I think the website is up now. It, if, if they uh, Google, Google the title, title of the book, um, they should be able to get to the website. Um, it's being published by Ex Libris, um, and they have access to it at exlibris.com. Um, it's also available from 
Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Well, thank you for sharing your story and the story of your grandfather, George Morris Thompson. Uh, correct at that time, 1898 to 1979. Thank you for uh, keeping his legacy alive and the legacy of those who have uh, been participants in keeping many nations safe from tyranny, uh, as is outlined in the Great War, or the Great uh, the Great War, World War One for sure. Fascinating story, wonderfully done. Again, the title: Hell, Heaven, or Hoboken by Christmas, an American soldier in the First Gas Regiment. Author Robert Lambert. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. All right, thank you. My pleasure. For Ex Libris on Air, this is J. Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris. Greetings for Ex Libris on Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. My author, Martin Groveman, has written a book titled Basketball is in My Blood, a basketball addict's autobiography. Joining me from the New York City area, Marty Groveman. Welcome, sir, to the program. Good morning, Jay. Good afternoon, I should say. Yes. Well, it's uh, some some part of the day, uh, and we're both together. That's this is a right, a, a book right. of two hundred and seventy pages, and what fascinated me about it not only was your passion for the game, but your ability to recall details. I can't remember what I did yesterday most of the time, and you are able to go back many many years and talk about your life as a basketball addict. It started in grade school, did it not? It, it certainly did, and the uh, if it was a movie. How it started would be that the gentleman who, uh, who who ignited my fire would have been an angel sent down from heaven. Wow. Uh, a man named Benji Lee, but he, he's the reason that it all occurred. Uh, you are also not, uh, by physical standards, a, a short individual. What What is your height? Um, six feet. And when I was young, I was about 170, 180, a little heavier as I've gotten older, but... Uh, at that time, you know, I was a regular-sized guard. So actually, the centers on our teams were guys 6'5", six, 6'6". Six, six. If you had a guy 6'9", uh, or 6'10", he was truly a giant in those days. Oh, absolutely. Everybody has a couple of guys on every team like that now. So you, you began You began the game in the neighborhood uh, of New York City, right? I mean, was this a neighborhood game that you just uh, fell in love with, or how did it how did it come about that it continued after grade school? Well, I was, uh, in the early part of my, I was a pretty poor kid, and the neighborhood in Brooklyn that I initially grew up with is called Brownsville, also known for its uh, gangs and <laughs> bad stuff, mm. but it was known as a mecca, for basketball, and in fact, in the early days of the National Basketball Association, many of the early pros came from that neighborhood and one school in particular called Thomas Jefferson High School. So uh, it, it, basketball was the game in that neighborhood. And we're talking about the 1950s. Is that correct, or is it right. earlier than that? Well, 50s, I was a, a, a teenager, but... Uh, Having been born in 37, by 1947, at 10, I, I became aware of the history already and was fascinated, even though I couldn't play with those guys at that time, of just watching them after the season and play in all the gyms and clubs there. And, uh, you know, I admired them and tried to emulate them, you know. And, it, and you, you say in your, uh, in your book on, on the cover itself that you are an addict, an addict's autobiography, and now the addiction was not to uh, bad things, but uh, basketball. Right, right. And the thing was that uh, long after I finished playing in college, uh, 
I spent after college uh, the next 50 years, uh, you know, teaching basketball, playing in every league that I can go to and every park that I can go to. And I, I had some pretty good company along the way of guys that I met in my, uh, my youth, even pre-teens. And uh, we played uh, together for so many years, 40 to 50 years. That's incredible. You know, we got we got old together too. <laughs> yeah, well, that happens. But yeah. you you have uh, yes. you have outlined in your story and profile of some of the players that you uh, associated with some uh, pretty unique characters. What is the most uh, unusual or amazing story that, that you recalled in in writing your book? Okay, there were a couple. Uh, the first one, uh, and it's really sad. There was a. A, a, a monumentally tragic basketball scandal in New York in 1950-51. And one of the schools involved was a school called CCNY, the City College of New York, and still remains the only school to ever win both the NIT, the National Invitation Tournament, which is now kind of downgraded, and the NCAA tournament in the same year. They won both a team that was made up mostly of, uh, of black players and white Jewish players. Mm. And I, when I became a player, I got to know these guys who in some cases went to jail for what they call point shaving and, and, and throwing games and, and found out that was a mistake of, uh, of misguided youth and they were great human beings in, in, in their life lives and redeemed themselves so many times over. So it was my getting to know these guys that made a mistake would probably be uh, the number one story. And then the number two story would probably be uh, a guy that I played ball all my uh, childhood and life with, a fellow named Don Red Goldstein, whose number was retired by Louisville, uh, was a great player for Louisville uh, in the uh, 50s. And he came from uh, that Brownsville neighborhood in a family with a mother in a mental institution, a father who was a deaf mute, a grandmother who who spoke no English. And he rose above his, uh, his low position in life socioeconomically to become a, an amazing man as a player, uh, an early NBA draft choice, and but elected to become a dentist and not play in the NBA. Wow. And he's just as fantastic. We're still friends at this very senior age of ours. And <laughs> we we played all through the years. We went to live for, we moved from Brooklyn to Long Island and played on Long Island. And we got together with as many Brooklynites that we knew through the years. And, uh, We've taken that ride together, and uh, his life is an inspiration. And uh, maybe I'm talking a little too much about this, but let me end it that he's a retired dentist now, and two days a week he, he devotes his time to serving in a poor uh, Spanish mission in Delray Beach, Florida, for no money. Phenomenal. And he, he volunteers his time. So he's a great human being, great athlete, and he, he remains an inspiration to me. Oh, and, uh, there's, there's there's some remarkable yeah. characters in there. One of the funniest yeah. stories I think that you probably can elaborate on was about a uh, swimming pool and a, uh, a player. Yeah, that's and, and my that? my uh, big friend Sid Levy, six ten guy from CCNY, who was standing in uh, a pool of six feet of water up to his chest, and this little old man came by and he said, "How's the water?" He says, it's fine. He says, is it deep? He says, I'm standing. And with that, the guy jumped in the water, and the expression on his face as he, he went beneath the surface was unbelievable. <laughs> and, and, of course, it saved him by picking him up <laughs> and lifting up to safety, yeah. that's that Was that, was that in the Poconos that, that that happened? No, that was in the Catskill Mountains. Oh, Catskills. Where, uh, where basketball, all, all the New York basketball players – went to work as waiters in the summertime in the Catskills and to play against each other. Wow, wow. And that, too, is a type of... That's a setting for the great movie uh, uh, Dancing with uh, uh, 
well, it was the oh, Patrick dirt, Swayze, Dirty, dirty, dirty Dancing. dancing. Dirty nice. yep. mm-hmm. But I can tell you the Dirty Dancing was not that kind of dancing. It was Latin <laughs> dancing that they, that took over in the Catskills. But how, that how, was a fantastic error himself, you know. 270 pages. There's a lot of detail in your book. Uh, you mentioned people by name, their height, their their, right. their skills. How was it possible for you, and I know that you're over the age of 50, how did you even remember their names and, and those details? Well, uh, most of the good ones, or a lot of good ones, became my friends. So I... <laughs> I uh, I stayed in touch, not because I was a groupie. We just had so much an interest that uh, after playing, we would go to diners or restaurants, and we we were sponsored by uh, many uh, eating establishments, and our lives became basketball and social and critiquing our play and just just like a kind of an unspoken fraternity. It really – and – the names just never left me, never left me. Well, Marty, how long did it take you to complete the 270 pages oh, uh, telling God, your story? I, I've been writing it. I was writing parts of it for about 10, 10 years, at least 10 years, and then updating it uh, as I saw it. Uh, new things flashed into my memory. And part of the reason was that they kept on telling me, what you're writing, it's great. It's great writing, but there's no market for this stuff. No market, you know. I would uh, I would disagree I would disagree with them. Interest and uh, uh, it really uh, cost me minimally, and uh, uh, it's now selling very well. So there uh, there is obviously a market out there. You know. Are you telling your story in person to 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 groups and uh, so on? I've told it to groups of like men's clubs and, and breakfasts that I invited uh, was invited to this weekend. I was in Florida this weekend and. Uh, uh, in a gated community with a pretty wealthy thing, they asked me to come and and give them tips as to how they could help how they could help their grandchildren uh, learn the rudiments of shooting and the fundamentals of the game. So it's kind of branched out, wow. really branched out. And, you know, people that I haven't heard from for forty years. Uh, uh, one from uh, uh, San Diego, La Jolla, California, called me. Someone I played ball with so many years ago, and he said, "My God, you, you put things down on paper which all of us enjoyed, but now it's it's forever. It's it's now <laughs> forever." So, is there any? Uh, I sto- feel very proud of that. You know. Yeah. Is there any story in here that you had to change the names and the circumstances to protect the guilty? I mean, it's something no, that I, I, you know. I really didn't uh, and there's only uh one person who went to jail that got is that is angry at me but the, the guys for example who were involved in the scandal uh when they read further uh, as when i wrote about how they redeem themselves they felt differently about it uh but there is one person in particular who uh who said that uh, he felt that i i uh I I revived something that should never have been written about, but uh-huh. in this one particular person's uh, life, it was such a shock to us when he got arrested. Uh, yeah, and there was another case. There was a very large, uh, very very prominent sports agent named Gary Richard, and he was the agent for Brian Bosworth, who was a famous football player called the Boz. Right. And for Jason Taylor, who just got inducted into the Football Hall of Fame. And, and they loved him because he was a, he not only was their agent, he became a, a friend and a mentor to these athletes, and they loved him for it. But he was deceived by his own accountant, the guy we played ball with, a 6'8 guy, who embezzled money from the person who made his life successful. So mm. that was a shock to me. That was truly a shock to me. And we haven't spoken to this guy until since he was arrested and, and jailed. We haven't. There's been no contact. Is so. is there a, a moral to the reading of this book? Do you have to be a, a person that's obsessed with sports in order to enjoy the read, do you think? Well, I think that's, that's what will get. If you don't have an interest in the sport, you probably wouldn't be attracted to reading it. But I've tried to convey in the book so many times. You see, I was in special education. I was an educator. I always worked with uh, a low socioeconomic kids and minority population. And I, and I feel that my early experiences playing 
with all the young and deprived, economically so, and educationally at some points, uh, black people in particular that I, that I, uh, that I got to know has helped me in my career. So there is a message that my sensitivities were aroused, my understanding of their problems and why it's so difficult to, uh, to get some of these people to raise above their, their position. Families that had uh, almost no fathers at home, really matriarchal societies and, and the anger that was beneath the surface all of that, I think, made me a, a a better educator and a better person, really. I got to know a broad spectrum of people through playing ball. Marty, do you think there may be a sequel to this book? I, I can't see a sequel uh, uh, to this, but I, God knows how many years I have left, but I, 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 do want, I did want to write something about the transition of all the girls and young women that I uh, that I coached, because it was felt that that was a theme for another book. Hmm. I didn't play with the young girls, but I I taught them in, in in basketball camp, and then followed their careers. A lot of them went on to be big time Division One programs, and the girls' game was such a primitive game twenty years ago, and now the girls are playing like the men did in the nineteen fifties. They yeah. played the card of ball that I played when I was learning how to play. It's a fascinating Pick and book. Roll, give and go. You know, they, right. they don't play over the rim like the amazing men's athlete, men athletes, but they play the the fundamental game that we played growing up. Well, you've done a great job. So I'd like to job. write something yes. about that. I, would. I, I think, I think yeah. you would be a, an excellent source for that, that book when it comes available. The title of this book is Basketball is in My Blood, a Basketball Addict's Autobiography. And my guest author, Marty 